again. It's time for another Ministry of Helps podcast. This is MOH podcast number, I want to say it's number 17, I think. It's number 17. And this one is going to be another tape from the uh, the Reed Revivals, where Winky is teaching, again, young converts uh, on, on witnessing. Some of you that have been listening for a while, you know, you know we did one called uh, Conditions of Knowing God's Will. This one is called The Conditions of Salvation. Uh, we all know there are conditions to just about everything. Probably one of the few exceptions would be uh, God's love. There's no conditions on God's love. But for God's salvation and other things, there are conditions. Even people who try to say they don't believe in conditions will still tell you that one of the conditions would have to be that Jesus died for your sins. Well, that's a condition. So uh, if there's one condition, there may be more. And uh, this was, uh, again, a time when young people were getting saved and were just hungry to go out and tell people about Jesus. Uh, we have met in our travels, uh, Dee and I have met some people who are, are like that now. And uh, if you're one of those people listening in, take a listen to this episode and glean what you can for your witnessing. And uh, we're going to just go ahead right with it. Uh, this one's called, this one is called The Conditions of Salvation. So here is Winky. If you have your manuals with you, section we'll be looking at and looking through will be Andrew right at the end of the manual called Witnessing Like Jesus. Morning we're going to be talking about the conditions of salvation. The conditions of salvation. The book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 17 We read some very interesting words in the light of the youth awakening that is upon us. Shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word used for prophecy or prophesy, in Acts 2.17 is an interesting word. It is the word that means speak out. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit, and your sons and your daughters shall speak out. Speak out for God. That's one exciting thing I think about Today's youth revolution, it has brought a willingness to be bold, to speak out, whatever you're speaking out for. You'll wear buttons and, and, uh, and bumper stickers and posters and all kinds of things because of this, this boldness. And God has promised the church that in the last days he would pour out of his spirit. It's an interesting thing in the Old Testament, that verse... In Joel 2.30, I think it is, the 
same verse in the Old Testament, God gives the signs when these things will happen. He says, I will show signs and wonders, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The Old Testament word pillars, some of you know, is not the word commonly used for pillar. It is a special word, timoroth, which means palm tree. Yeah, it's a very interesting word, timoroth, palm tree of smoke. Now, King James translator said you can't have a palm tree of smoke because smoke either looks like a pillar, like this, and I've seen it go up in a very clear, still day, or otherwise it looks like a puff, poof. But a palm tree looks like both. They said you couldn't have a palm tree of smoke, they said. So the King James translation in your Old Testament, you'll see the word pillars. But if you want to look that up in a Young's or Strong's concordance and look up the original word, you'll see the word palm tree. Very significant. Timoroth. That Hebrew word, Timoroth. It's only used twice in the whole Old Testament. The other time it's used, the Song of Solomon. And uh, I think that's a significant word. God says in the last days you'll see those signs, and young people will speak out for God in those last days. I think we're living in those last days. Now, before we go to speak out for men and women, and we're going to talk briefly about the preparation first, of our own lives for the thing God has called us to speak out about. Before we speak out to men, we must first talk to God. If we want to have a real love for people, there must be a real love for God. If we want to hear from heaven, we must first let heaven hear from us. And this is a whole base of soul winning. That's why I put in the front of that little tract, the church is looking for better methods God is looking for better man, that tremendous quote by Ian e. Bounds in his book, Power Through Prayer. And that's the whole purpose of having a camp like this, where we first have a weeding process and get rid of all the hangers-on and the also-rans and take a group of young people who are committed to seeing Jesus Christ honored and glorified across the nation and then pour into your hearts the tools that you'll need to do the job. It must begin then, all witnessing must begin, with Christian people. I am against soul winning plans that a soap manufacturer could change a few words with and sell soap just as effectively as he could preach Christ with it. I want to see the kind of uh, idea of salvation, so we need the Holy Spirit to help us. And if we don't have him, we're sunk. I need the kind of soul winning plan in the hands of kids so that their lives are far from God. It's not going to operate. We don't want kids coming through that are as garbagey as the person who gives it to them. We want to have young people who love God and who demonstrate God, and even if they don't have any plans, can still lead people through to Jesus Christ. And uh, I had 15 soul winning plans when I started off as a Christian. Uh, I used each one at least once. That was just about all I ever used. It worked good the first time. It was like a sermon. You tried the second time, and it was like dead cake, you know. <laughs> I got the second thing. Finally, I found myself... Really bothered. I, I got the best plans out of the whole lot, and I thought, oh, well, I'll use these for my soul winning. And, you know, the argument seemed very good. And if you don't have a plan, you don't know where you're going, you get all confused, and need a plan. If you can memorize it, then you can, you know, work from step to step. And so I memorized it, and I needed my plan, and 
And then one time I was talking to a person, you know, and he's looking at me, and, and I'm trying to remember the next part of the plan. What was the next thing <laughs> of this plan? And this, this guy's trying to tell me about his wife has run off and left him, you know. I'm trying to think of the next part of the plan. And he must have sensed I was thinking about something else that wasn't particularly connected with his need as far as he thought. Now, he didn't know I was trying to lead him to Christ. All he knew that in the back of my head I was thinking about something else that wasn't as important as his need. And he left. The other thing that bothered me about a plan is I had a real good one. It was really a tremendous thing. Whether the guy wanted to pray or not, you put your hand on the shoulder and said, do you want to pray, you know? And Well, he could either tear himself out from under your hand and run down the street screaming, or he could pray. 98 out of 100 times, he'd pray. The thing that bothered me is I was doing this in Detroit Teen Challenge, had all these kids put my hand on their shoulder, would you like to pray? They prayed. And uh, I came back the following day one day, and I saw a whole group of them that I'd led to. I should come back every day, you know. I got 15 today, you know. <laughs> on my belt. I saw these kids down the street that I had witnessed to and prayed with. And uh, they saw me coming. And I waved. I said, hi. And they ran down the street as fast as they could run. I thought, good night. There's got to be some kind of better soul winning method than that. And there is. Have you ever wondered what Jesus' soul winning plan was? You'd like to look at the book of John and we'll see if we can find it. All right, here's the first time Jesus ever does any witnessing. Verse 35 of John chapter 1. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, and he saw them following, and he said unto them, have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a wrong translation here. Said, what seek you? So here's, here's the Lord's soul winning plan. First you have to say, number one, what seek you? Keep this carefully in mind, because this is a soul-winning plan. Now, what's the second step? They said, where do you live? All right? Step two is to say, come and see. We're getting it now. Oh, well, it doesn't tell us much more about this plan, but that's an interesting plan. I've never seen one like that. What seek you and then come and see, all right? And then, here comes one of them, Andrew, is going out to find his brother. And he says, we've found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And they brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, what seek ye? No, he didn't. He said, you are Simon, the son of John. All right, we have to add that to a plan. You are whatever your name is. All right? The day following... Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and he finds Philip, and he said, What seek ye? Come and see. You are Philip. He said, Follow me. All right, let's add that one to the plan. Or, follow me. Now, the Lord has collected half of his disciples with his plan, so it's a good plan. 
Let's keep hanging in here. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, What seek ye? Come and see. You are Nathanael. Follow me. He said, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. So we have to say, Behold an American indeed. Huh? Boy, this is getting a complex plan. Next you say, Because I said unto thee, I saw the end of the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. There must be a simpler way to learn this. Well, let's leave this and, and go somewhere else. This is a little complex. We've got the basic idea anyway. You're supposed to say something about come and see or follow me or behold an Israelite or tell them their name or something like this. Now let's move on to John chapter 3 and <laughs> we'll get the rest of this plan here. <clears throat> Then came to Jesus by night, and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus answered and said, All right, what is he going to use? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the... Goodness, that's another thing we have to add to the plan. Could it be born again? Then you could look, if you like, onto John chapter 4, because we've got to pick up this strange soul-winning plan. Here's a woman in Samaria, verse 7. What is Jesus' opening remarks? Are you interested in spiritual things, he says to this woman. He actually says, give me a drink. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, friends, but if you keep on reading the Bible like this, you will go batty. Trying to work out a soloning plan. When I first looked at all the things that Jesus said, I thought, this, I, I can't believe this. I, he keeps going around saying mysterious statements and people get changed all over the place. And I could not see how in the world there's any order or pattern in this thing till I began to understand what the conditions of salvation are. Now, the reason why I've gone this rather devious route by giving you all these different looks is to show you that Jesus did not have a plan. And I hope you understand that by reading this. He did not have a plan. Now, I'll tell you the disadvantages of a plan. The basic disadvantage is this. If you go up to one young man who has been witnessed to before by somebody using the same plan as you have used, he knows a plan is after him. Do you see that? And what say you're the seventh person who's witnessed to him in the same day on the same beach with the same plan? He knows a plan is after him. But what say you're the seventh person who right out of the blue comes down and starts talking to him about Jesus Christ, says essentially the same things but in totally different ways, then he knows God is after him. And that's a lot different. I can always run away from a plan, but I don't think I could handle God. Do you see why we have not given you plans to witness with? The plans are sometimes helpful to inspire a little confidence, but I think they're more helpful for you than they are for the sinner sometimes. And often, by a great mercy of God, a plan will lead somebody through to Christ and they'll really get saved, and that's a marvelous thing. But I want to see if we can share with you something better than a plan, something so simple you'll never need a plan again. 
And we have gone this long route over these days talking about what salvation is, who God is like, what man has done, so you can have an understanding. And having an understanding, you'll never need a plane. Now, I've talked with a large number of cults. They all have planes, very good planes. Matter of fact, most and back home in New Zealand, I have a little microphone that looks like a flower sitting in a flower pot. And I invite all the cultists in, and we talk for about eight hours at a time. The, the table run that long. And uh, we've got this special LP tape there, and I put down the whole plan on tape, and I can play it back, type it out, and I'll have the whole cult soul winning course. In word for word, they know exactly what the next word to say if you say such and such a thing. I don't know how long it takes them to train like that. Must, they must go at least five or six hours a week in training alone to memorize that vast and complex thing. But you see, that's a plan. And we're not talking about a plan. We're talking about an understanding of salvation. I think you understand by now that God has freely offered to give man a beautiful gift, the gift of life, that man, the Bible says, is in deep trouble and one he will not get out of easily. But God has been willing to grant this rebellious little creature a pardon. And God has done all that he possibly can to meet his side of the bargain. He has provided a substitute for the penalty of sin at great cost to himself. And remember, the Lord Jesus was no hostage. He voluntarily offered his life. He wasn't forced to do it by the Father. Jesus himself said, I will go, I will die, I will take the place of that penalty. God has done all he can, and now there are conditions. Let us look first, when we talk about these conditions, at the things that God must do in order to restore a man to himself. Now, you can understand when we talk about the conditions little while what God needs to do. Here are the things God must do in salvation. First of all, he must restore a broken friendship. And anybody who has ever broken up with somebody that once was a friend and through some misunderstanding or some uh, wrong move or false step broke off the friendship with that person or that person broke it off with you, you know how hard it is to bring back two people who once were friends and now have broken and even become enemies. There is nothing harder than to do that. I think of uh, Ben-Hur and Masala. That, that sometimes the friendships that are once so close together when a thing of division comes in between them, then the gap becomes broader and broader until finally Masala becomes Ben-Hur's bitterest enemy and does his best to see him sold into slavery and his household wiped out. And Ben-Hur comes back and does his best to see his enemy destroyed. Restore broken friendship. Have you ever, um, let's say there's a guy and he really loves this girl and you can tell he loves her because he's always talking about her all the time. And one day, he's really down. You go to him and you try to cheer him up. You say, hey, what's wrong? He says, oh, nothing. It's all right, you know. And you say, uh, how's Amanda, or whatever her name is. And there's silence. See? And you say, uh, hey, uh, how's Amanda? He says, shut up, will you? See? Now, you know that there's been a breach because of the silence that happens. 
And what happens when you go up to somebody and you say, uh, um, do you know Jesus? Boom, there's dead silence. You know there's the same kind of breach. It's a sensitive and very touchy subject. Don't talk to me about God, see? And that's one of God's hardest problems. He must restore broken friendship. And then we must see that man is against man. God has to restore man to man. The world is filled with bitterness, with hatred, with fear. People are against each other. There's prejudice. And the ground at the foot of the cross is level. God must bring men together again. Not just bring men back to him, but bring them back together with each other. That is another thing that salvation must accomplish. Thirdly, man has earned for himself, because of real rebellion against real laws, guilt. And guilt must be forgiven. God must find a way to forgive guilt, to restore man. Modern psychiatry has some real problems with this. It's possible to erase guilt to some extent from a person's personality. People have great and deep problems with guilt. Lie them down on the couch, tie an electrical shock machine to their mind, and flash in a couple of hundred volts or so into their brains and give them shock treatments until their whole personality with all those guilty memories are shocked into oblivion. The trouble with that is you lose your personality too. You lose your memory. All the memories connected with guilt are also shocked out. And uh, you, you gradually, piece by piece, what say your whole life has been guilty? The only way to get rid of guilt is to shock your whole life out. And there must be a better way than that. God must find a way to forgive guilt. Scriptures tell us everyone will give an account of himself before God. It is appointed unto man once to die and after death the judgment. And everybody has a deep down sense that, you know, after death there's going to be a... Even the, the materialist has that deep down fear. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And it's funny how... Death is a very unpopular subject. I remember I was uh, talking to a guy who came back from the service, and we were witnessing to him. Just happened to bring up death, and I said, "Well, you know, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and he just like he went into shock. See, deep down underneath is that consciousness: one day I'll have to face my maker, no matter what words are said." And uh, God must find a way to forgive. And then four, man must quit living selfishly. God of love can find no way to restore man to happiness unless man quits living selfishly. Man has run from God. He's changed the truth of God into a lie. And he's begun to live selfishly. And then, some other things, a couple of others, and this will show you God's problem. Five, man must be made clean. Must be a way to clean man up. You see, all sin always scars. Somehow, some way, someone. Burns the personality. The scripture tells us sin enslaves. It says that the selfish man is fulfilling the desires of his flesh and his mind. God must wash us and renew us by his Holy Spirit. Man's 
body sometimes needs to be healed. Sometimes his soul needs to be healed. Sometimes his spirit needs to be delivered from demonic forces. Man must be made clean. He must be restored. His heart condemns him. And then, sixthly, there must be power given to man to keep him going. It may be good to fix all these things up, to get his past cleaned up and restored, but what say this man goes back into the same thing that he just came out of? Somehow power must come into his life that will keep him going, that will give him a brand new direction and dynamic in life. Man must have power to keep going, to persevere, if you like, in this newfound experience that we hope to bring him into. And then man must be prepared for the future. Man must be ready for the future. That's one funny thing about today's young people. Here is a quote from a magazine. Uh, give you an idea of some kids. They were long-haired. They were young. Often they frolicked nude in the streets and consumed generous amounts of dope wore brightly colored clothes when they did, and they were protesting their parents' rampant materialism. Who were they? Hippies? No. The Bazingos in France, 1830s. And the sociologist who put this study together said, it is very interesting that when men lose, lose hope in the future, as they have, all of Rome, now the Napoleonic Wars, and back there in France, then uh, kids begin to immerse themselves in a sharp sensory experience to preserve an illusion because there's going to be no future. But the Bible has a beautiful thing to say. It says there is a future and man must be prepared for it. He must be made ready for it. Now see how these problems. These are the problems that God has to do to bring a man back, to restore him. These problems, these massive problems must all be conquered in this marvelous word salvation. So we're going to look at the conditions of salvation. Marvelous thing about these problems, and none of them are in God's heart. God has no problems in bringing man to salvation. Man has sinned terribly and extensively against God. Even if he'd been a little good here and there, it would have alleviated, but his whole life has been selfish. And uh, God still longs to forgive him. Man doesn't even want to ask pardon. Be one thing if, if man had done all these things and he was going around crying unto God, Oh God, somehow pardon me. But he doesn't want to ask it. He's proud and he's hypocritical and he pretends he hasn't really done so much wrong and he refuses to acknowledge his guilt before God. God still longs to forgive him. And man is able to respond to God and he doesn't want to. It makes it even worse and God still longs to forgive him. So God doesn't have all these problems with himself. He only has problems with man. All those things must be solved in salvation, and God, in his great wisdom, has found a beautiful way to solve them. They are, that's where we look at the conditions of salvation. I think you ought to understand, first of all, that there are different ways in which a person can make a false decision for salvation. I want you to look 
in either one of three Gospels because the story appears in all three. It's the story of the sower and the soil. You'll find it in Matthew 13. You'll also find it in Mark. Mark chapter 4. And you'll also find it in the book of Luke. Luke chapter... Where is it? Luke chapter 8. Now let's look at Luke. You can uh, look at those other passages, do a little comparative study on them if you want, with your interweave thing. But uh, when God repeats our sermon three times, what do you suppose he's trying to get across to us? It's important. He says it twice. If I say to you, listen, and then I say, listen, I say it twice. What if I say, listen, three times? You really listen. That's what God says. You read it one thing, you say, I read that story. And he's saying, listen. Such an important parable, I think, because it is the story of the sower and the soils. Not the sower and the seed, really. It is a parable of the soils. You'll notice in this parable that a sower goes forth to sow. The interesting thing about this is that the sower is the same in each case, and the seed is the same. He doesn't use different kinds of seed. He uses the same seed. You will notice that the only difference in each case between the plants that made it and the plants that didn't is the lack of preparation given to the soil. Now, sometimes when you're preaching to a large group of people, you're sort of shooting a bit like buckshot. You know, there's a bunch of people out there and you're just firing what the Lord has given you. It'll hit somebody in the heart, somebody just in the head, and it'll miss somebody altogether. And you'll have this kind of scattering effect. But what say you have personally time to deal with individual people? Then there may be time to plow the soil. I'm going to show you three kinds of counterfeit converts. The first one was somebody that fell on hard ground. They have a hard ground. There is soil there, but it's hard. And the scriptures tell us that some fell by the wayside. The wayside, of course, the pathway. It's soil that's been trodden on so long, it's become a path. You ever tried to... Uh, you know those tracks that people have walked over and try and plant anything in? You have to chip into that thing with a rock to get into the hard ground. And of course, the seed just sits there on top of the thing. It doesn't go in. It doesn't start growing. And what do you expect happens? The birds come along and they eat the seed. And that's the end of the seed. Doesn't even get it. Doesn't even get underway. Hard ground. Then secondly, we have some that fell among thorns. Fell on rock, rather. It, uh, when it talks about rock, really, when you do a study on these other things, you'll find that there's, there's really a top soil. It's not just hard rock. There is hard rock. Um, watch that one, too. It's, uh, it is rocky ground that has a very thin layer of topsoil over it, soft topsoil, but down there there's rocks. So what happens... You know, topsoil, is all the nitrous oxides and that come from the thunderstorms. It's very highly fertilized, this thin layer of topsoil. It's good growing soil. But down here, nobody took the trouble to dig the rocks up. 
So what happens is that the plant starts to grow, it runs its roots down, and then it can't get past these rocks. So it grows out sideways. It starts to spread out sideways. And because it's grabbing all these nutrients off the top, it shoots up really fast. And you'll find there are people like this. You know, they apparently get saved rapidly. They just shoot up all over the place, see? And uh, the trouble is, with this, is that the, the roots are not really deep. And then the sun comes up. And what do you think the sun does? It dries up this thin layer of topsoil. It takes all the moisture out of it. And the roots are not down there. So when the trouble comes on, the heat comes on, what happens to the plant? It dies. Suddenly that plant that showed great promise just and it's out. And then, lastly, in the bad soil, there is ground that is good soil. It must be good because a great deal of weeds are growing in it. And this plant grows up really well, starts to grow, and then the weeds grab it from either side and choke it to death. And that's the end of that. Now, Jesus did not leave us in the dark and telling us what kind of soils they were. The fourth and the beautiful soil was that which fell in to good ground, sent its roots down, and the thing went up and it brought forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Jesus tells us which were which. The disciples said, what do you mean by this parable? He said, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The sower, of course, is the one who preaches the word of God. Namely, that's you and you're witnessing. Those by the wayside are those that hear. Then comes the devil and takes the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. That's why we have to pit out prayer against the enemy when we, when we pray. And we also have to learn how to break up the fellow ground in a person's life. We find a hard kid. Now, how many of you know it's easy to witness to somebody who's just, you know, walked in and he's broken and he's weeping all over the place and he says, I've done everything there is to do and I'm still not, not uh, cleaned up. And he says, is there any hope for me here? And, you know, what do you do? You don't have to say, well, let me see now. Let me try my first 1,500 things on you. When a, when a kid comes in, he says, I hate what I'm doing. I despise what I'm doing. There's no way I can get out of it. Then what, what do you say then? This man is broken. So you just plant the seed in a faith and then watch it shoot up. What's that guy comes in? He says, all right, what do you got for me, man? You know, anything cool? You know, if not, goodbye. You know, this, what do you do? You say, oh, believe quickly. You know, that's dumb. Fall on his Boom, the devil take it right out of his heart. He'll, he made me pray with you. All right, if you want me to pray, what I have to pray? You know, that kind of thing. When I see a kid like that, I know, number one, I got some work to do. Get out my plow, and run it over until that starts busting up there. We'll show you how to run the plow over in a little while. And then the second kind of soil are those that when they hear, they receive the word with joy. Oh, they're so excited. Oh, wow, this is the heaviest trip I've ever been on in my life. Have you ever heard people like this? Man, I've tried all kinds of things, and now I've tried Jesus, and it is so cool. Wow. They rush off and get on television the next week and tell <laughs> how fantastically their life has been changed. They have no root. 
which for a while believe and in a time of temptation fall away. And another passage in the, in the scriptures tells us, if you do this comparative thing, if you want to go back to uh, Matthew, you'll see, um, I think it's Matthew. It, it tells us, Verse 21 of Matthew 13. Another thing about this man. Why was it that he got offended? It says, 21, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. So what the son is here is trouble. Now we find out we've got a counterfeit convert. He likes to serve Jesus as long as it's the end thing, see? Wow, you know, this is so heavy. Jesus is known all over. And it's so cool to be in. So I'm for Jesus. Now, what say Jesus is being nailed up on Golgotha? Suddenly, this person isn't interested. It's not in anymore to be Christian. It's completely out. That's the kind of person you see. And you can watch that. How many times have we seen a, a person, I, I think of movie actresses that, that weep and say, oh, you know, I got saved, and they testify all over the place, and people shoot films on them in their first three days of conversion, and two days later they're back boozing away again, they backslid, apparently. I don't even think they slid forwards. Nobody took the trouble to teach them that serving Jesus, you didn't serve Jesus because it was fun, you didn't serve Jesus simply because he'd make you happy, that was a side benefit, you serve Jesus Christ because he's the loveliest person in the universe, and whatever it costs you, whether it costs you your life or not, you still serve him. That's why when we take a young convert, we never push him out. I, I would never take a person who had a really rotten background, you know, whose life was totally messed up, and then push him suddenly in national prominence. I'd let him be tested. Try out, see, run a plow over and over again to see just how his heart was broken up. Let him be tested by the Lord until he's proved himself worthy. Then let him testify and tell people what Jesus has done in his life because something has happened for him. Do you see this? And don't be so keen on telling people they're saved. You let the Lord tell them that. You've got no right to tell them. You can't say, now you're a Christian. You don't keep the books, he does. I say if you've met those conditions, God will justify your salvation. You haven't, I'm not going to tell you you're saved. See, because I don't know. I'm not God. I just messenger boy. I just pass on the message. And the last guy, who was this guy? Well, he started off well, but nobody took the trouble to get rid of the weeds in his garden. And I think here we have a friendship thing. There's got to be a coming out of the crowd, there's got to be a complete separation. From the crowd. The scriptures tell us, though that fell upon thorns are those when they've heard, they go forth and are choked with cares, with riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. They start off well, but nobody tells them that the con conditions of discipleship are deny yourself, take up your cross and follow them. And so many people I know that sit in churches fit into this category. They made a profession one time, they came into camp or an altar. But the cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering and choke the word and becomes unfruitful. Now, the thing we really want to look at is what God says here, and I want you to do this comparative study now. 
We're going to get the conditions of the ground that made it. I want you to read out for me. You can look in any one of the sections. Tell me what God says are the conditions of the ground that made it. Verse 15 of Luke chapter 8 tells you some conditions. They've got to be honest, a good heart. They heard and keep it and and they bring forth fruit, fruit with patience. Let's look at any other place in the Luke, in the Matthew and the Mark section, see if we can get anything else. Verse 23 of Matthew 13. And understand it. Aha! See the value of the comparative thing? And now let's look at Luke, see if he adds any, uh, to Mark, see if Mark adds anything. Mark chapter 4. And verse 20. They received it. Here are God's conditions of salvation very carefully laid out for us. So we do not misunderstand what it costs to be a Christian. An honest heart. The man must hear the word. His heart must change. He must be good. He must receive it. He must keep the word. He must understand what he does. He must bring forth fruit as a sign that he has made it with patience. And there it is, conditions of salvation. And we're going to look at the ones that are most important here, and we're going to see what God means. If I was to sum up all the things that this man does into a few words, could we put these together in one, one or two words now? Let's look at this thing. Um, which one will we put first? The one that God puts first, honest. Now, can we put any of these in a second category? Heard, receive, and understand. All right. Could we put understand under honesty? Could we put receive down here under keep? And what about the patience? Where can we put that? Under here? Bring forth fruit. Put that in here. Let's see what the Bible fruit is, by the way. Book of Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8. Let's see what the fruit God is looking for. Good friends, we have three conditions. Admit, repent, and these are summed up in the Bible word faith. Do you see the conditions? Very simple. But now do you see the breakdown of these things? To have an honest heart is to really understand what God is talking about and to be open with Him. To bring forth fruit into repentance means that you stop doing wrong and you start doing what God wants you to do. You have a good 
heart. And then patience, keeping, receiving, obeying the word, if you like, is all summed up in that Bible word faith, which simply means a loyalty of love to the word of God. Let's look at a man who does not understand and who is not honest. Will he be saved? No, he will not be saved. Therefore, if we say to a man who is not honest, believe, will he become a Christian? The answer is no. What say we say to a man, believe, and he does not repent? Will he be saved? The answer again is no. Do you see these are absolute essentials for ground that makes it? There must be an understanding. There must be honesty. What say we say to a person, listen, just, you don't have to think, just, just trip out on Jesus. Will he be saved? He does not understand. How can he be saved? What say his life never changes? Is he a Christian? No. Now, when you look at these things, we are beginning to reduce the conditions of salvation down to their irreversible minimum. Without which we can say to a man, you will never be saved if you do not meet these conditions. And understand, it is not up to us to make it any simpler or easier than God has made it. Do you see those vast eight problems that we put on the board? God has got to solve all of those with that mighty experience called salvation. The conditions he has designed, those conditions here, eight conditions, meet eight problems. And he can do this tremendous thing. These are the things man must meet in order for God's power to flow into his life and change him. Now, when you look at all that, which do you use and what do you use at what time? You look and say, well, you know, well still... Let's say the four spiritual laws still look a little simpler at the moment. Getting closer. Now we're going to look at three kinds of people. We're going to keep these three conditions in mind. Admit in honesty. Three kinds of people you'll find in your manuals and also in that little sheet witnessing like Jesus. We have the first man called the unconvicted. This man is a sinner who is dead. Every man, you would know this if you look back in your past, every person that does not know Jesus Christ is not sick, needing a doctor, but dead, needing an undertaker. He's dead in trespasses and sin. He's not only dead, he is asleep to his deadness. He's not awakened. Then we have the second kind of man who is the undelivered. This man is a sinner too, but he is awake and dead. Spiritually dead, but he is awakened to God's claims. Something has come into his life to make him aware of what he is doing. He has begun to get a hatred for what he's doing. He doesn't like what he's doing, but there's no power to get him out. And then we have the third group of people I call the unashamed. And these are 
those who are awake and alive. And their other name are the Christians. You might pay to understand, if you could see a line here, that when a person crosses this line, on one side we put on the line life, on the other side of the line we put death, to bring a person up to that line sometimes takes a process of teaching and love and you know, patience to bring them up to that line. But salvation itself is an instantaneous experience. You're not gradually becoming more and more saved. You're brought up to a point of conviction, up to a point of decision, and then when that decision is made, a man shifts from death to life in a spontaneous, uh, miraculous rebirth experience, the Bible calls the new birth. His whole life has changed, transformed and shifted around. But not all people are as close to the line as others. You may get a man way back here who does not even understand what you're talking about. Now, so many, many preachers go out, for instance, and try to speak to young people, and they don't understand their culture or their language or their words. And they come and they say, Brother, you really need to be sanctified and regenerated by the blood. <laughs> and this guy says, Oh, really? <laughs> that is cool, whatever that is, you know. But do you see, if you went over to some country that did not speak English and you were going there as a missionary, you'd have to learn the language. And the person must understand what you're talking about. That's why it's so good to be able to uh, be in the youth culture and work out of the youth culture and talk to people that you know. You know the language already. You don't have to be like a missionary and have to spend four years learning the language. You know the language already. Man, you were born in that mission field. You know all the things there are to, to know about it. All you have to do is get the message and be God's man, and that's what this is all about. You have a tremendous advantage if you've lived already. People say, let's go over to Africa and help the heathen. I think there's more heathen per square inch of high school and college campus than there are per square acre of jungle. But you may meet a man who's way back here. He may have no conception at all about God. Now, what do you do? Do you rush up to this man and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your house? <laughs> he says, oh, <laughs> what is saved? He doesn't even think he's lost yet, see? Oh, he feels, and I've listed here in the, in the manual and the little tract you have, what a, what a man who is asleep and dead may feel. He doesn't usually feel greatly convicted of guilt or sin. Sometimes he feels vaguely disturbed about things like that. But the usual characteristic to this man... You'll see this under where it says uh, mission. See the mission under two? His life is both basically selfish and dishonest. This is a habit. He has no obvious concern or thought about God. He has no little or no sense of the wickedness or danger of sin. How many people are getting in society like this now? Because Christians do not understand how to use the law of God, how to use repentance to run the plow over and break up people's hearts. Uh, they have no feeling or no awareness of what God feels about what they're doing. And they are unaware of the terrible destiny they're forging for their lives. The Bible says they are blinded. They can't see all these things. And what do they feel, these people? They are bored. A great deal of them are bored. They've, they've done everything there is to do and there's nothing left to do. 
They have no purpose in life. They feel vaguely dissatisfied with themselves. And sometimes the word lost comes through strong to this man. Lost. He walks outside and he's done everything there is to do and he's tried every kind of sin imaginable and he looks around and it's just empty and he says, I'm lost. It really means something. Lost. Now, what is this man looking for? He's trying to look for some kind of happiness at last. Some kind of meaning and purpose in his life. Sometimes security, accomplishment, and love. Most of all, love. Some real genuine kind of love. Somebody that really cares. That's How many unconcerned men do you know that you've met that are like this, that fit into this category? Do you remember these kind of people? You were there one time. You were there one time. Look back at the pit that God called you out of, and you'll remember where you were. Now, if somebody had come to you at this time and laid a heavy thing on you about believe in Jesus Christ, you know, you may have listened, you may not have. It didn't hit you where you were at. So what you need to do here is to see that this man is so used to living selfishly, he doesn't even really think about it. So you must remind him. That's where the law of God comes in. And that's where the basic key for reaching the unconvicted man is concern. It is love on behalf of the Christian. That's why I put it in a little bracket here. Key concern. This guy doesn't care about God, but somehow he must know that God cares about him. He doesn't even care about himself. You must show him that somebody cares, and that's you. That's why you're there. You must show him that you care and that God cares. And usually a guy will say this to you, well, what do you mean now? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. What is, you know, he'll say this kind of thing. Or he'll say, I don't care about God. Now, what do you say? You have to get across to this man that you're concerned about him. Say, yeah, but I care about you. God cares about you. That's why I'm here. And when he starts shifting off, he says, well, I didn't. You say, do you know why you feel the way you feel? Because your life is selfish. When you come in there and he feels his love, and you start to bring back to mind for him the real reason of his problem. What your job is, friend, is to wake him up. Let me show you now. Let's turn to the book of Acts and see what God called the apostle Paul to do. The book of Acts. Paul shares with us his heart in Acts 26. He tells us the commission that Jesus gave him which was kept secret in the earlier part of the book of Acts. You don't really see the full commission Jesus gave to the Apostle Saul or Paul. Acts 26, he said, verse 16, Rise and stand upon your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of those things which you have seen and of those things in which I will appear unto you delivering you from the people and from the heathen unto whom now I send you. Verse 18, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they might receive forgiveness of sin. Do you see Paul's commission? Open their eyes to turn them around from darkness to light, that they may receive forgiveness. So our job is to open the man's eyes. Now, 
the basic thing we've been giving you here is that all sin is selfishness. And you have marvelous allies working with you. Your marvelous ally is your conscience and the Holy Spirit. Conscience inside this man and the Holy Spirit. So when you say to him, well, I'll tell you what your problem really is, friend. Your life is selfish. You've hurt God, you've hurt others. And when you say selfish, it starts to strike a chord deep home inside this man's heart. He understands. You may say selfish. The Holy Spirit may say lust, cheat, lie, dishonest. He may run all those things through his mind. He is saying selfishness. And the Holy Spirit is putting all these words in here and bringing all these pictures. That, you've got a tremendous help there. You don't even know what's happening. Sometimes it's so funny. I'm talking about like this, and I'm giving an illustration. A guy's going, Ooh. I say, say, for instance, you've got a girl under trouble. <laughs> And that's exactly what he did, you know. <laughs> well, I was talking to one guy, and I said, uh, now, let's say you stole something from a shop. And it's just, weird God, you know. But uh, God can give you words. How do you think the woman at the well got hit right between the eyes? Jesus said, give me a drink of water. And then she went through all this rigmarole. And then Jesus looked, he said, oh, go call your husband and come here. She said, oh, sir, I have no husband. He said, you're right. You've had seven husbands. The man who's living with you now is not your husband. <laughs> so she said, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> but you know why she went and called all her friends? Because there was a supernatural thing in that witness. She knew it. Jesus wasn't following a plan. He hit her right between the eyes. And you watch the Holy Spirit work with you. We talk so much in Soul Winning Plans about needing the Holy Spirit, and you never need Him. It's all programmed for you. I want something that you can't go out without needing God to show you what's going on inside that guy's heart. And then watch what the Holy Spirit does. What, what power to be able to work with Christ, to run a plow over the man's heart. Understanding, a very simple thing, you must show your concern. And we'll come back and simplify this even more in a second. The next kind of man is a convicted man. He has an awakened interest in God. He's convicted, but he's not converted. Often, this kind of person is a church-type person. And many of them think they're Christians. If you wanted to name this man and give a perfect description of his life, you could use Romans chapter 7. You could read it out to him and say, Isn't this you? The good that I would, I do not. He says, Yeah, that's me. And you say, Well, that's an unsafe man. What? That's supposed to be a Christian. No. Whatever happened in Romans 7, the opposite happened in Romans 8. And if Paul describes his life in Romans 7... In Romans 8, he's out of the life he used to be in. And so many people sit in churches, think they're Christians, and all they are is awakened, convicted sinners. They have never been delivered from sin. They just have a, a, a rotten feeling about sin now. They've been, they, they know enough about the gospel to feel rotten about it, but they do not know enough about the power of Jesus Christ to be free from it. When you find a man who is awakened to a sin, but he's undelivered from it, then your key now is challenge. You must lay before this man or this woman that you're talking with, this girl or this guy, 
you must lay before them the cost of what it means to be a Christian. So when I work in a church, I come very strong and on this thing. I'll say, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, it'll cost you everything you've got. Is it a boyfriend? Is it a girlfriend? Is it a habit, a plan, a dream? See? Put the challenge out there. And they must be willing to make that cost. If they don't, they will never be delivered. If I took a bunch of unsaved guys, I would preach unselfishness for a long time until I found an awakening. Then move down here. And finally, the Christian... You'll recognize them. They love Christ. Some of them have battles, struggles, trials. Whenever you zero in on a Christian and give him the answers on something, he goes away and gets it right immediately. That's the difference. Now, let's come all the way back and sum this up to close up here on all these things that we've been talking about. We've covered the board with conditions. I took in the little track, these are the facts, and I laid out those basic conditions and I amplified them so that it would be easy to understand. But I did an interesting experiment one time. I took a bunch of kids that had given their lives to Christ and I asked them to write out how they really got saved. Not how they were supposed to get saved, but how they really got saved. What was it that went through their heads up to and including the time when they finally decided to, to make that break. And it's really interesting. We know now that there are three conditions. What are they? Be honest. And then the second one, repent. And third, faith. Faith in who? In Jesus, not in faith. Some people say, I have faith, and their faith is faith in faith, whatever that is. Just as long as you have faith, brother, that's the important thing. Faith in who? Word of God, living and written. Written book, obedience to it. All right. And the interesting thing, when I ran this study with all these kids, they all wrote in, and it was so weird. They said, well, I don't know, they were singing about the lamb, and I thought, what a funny thing to call a person a lamb. And they were talking, you know, and all these different weird things that went through their minds. And then I discovered something really marvelous. This will simplify your witnessing right down to absolute zero minimum plan. What is the first thing that God has to do to bring a man to salvation? The very first thing. Before anything else, and God has given it to us right in his word and it's sitting there on the board. And it comes by being honest. I want you to think very carefully about this word honest. And when you read in the Bible, all the word lies, hypocrisy. Have you ever wondered where Jesus is as far as the sinner is concerned? People have this idea. Here is a sinner sitting here, see? All right? And he accepts Jesus into his heart. And they get this idea. You tell me where God is. Or better still, tell me where he isn't. Where is this living God? Look in the book of Acts, chapter 17, and you'll find out. Acts, chapter 17, verse 28. 
Where is God? He's everywhere. What about the sinner? He's there too. He's closer than hands or feet. And you say that to a sinner and watch what happens. God is closer to you than your next breath. Now what separates a sinner from God? Distance? No. Sin. Dishonesty. That's what separates. The only thing that separates. So do not think of salvation as some sort of rush coming in. It is a breakdown of a dishonesty barrier between the dimension that God lives in and the dimension we live in. Where can you go where God is not? No place. Then how come a sinner doesn't accept Jesus? It is not receiving Jesus, period. It is receiving Jesus as the Lord and Master of your life. Do you see that? What we have now, a picture of sort of a gas being poured in when a person makes a decision. That's not where it's at. It is a breakdown of a communication barrier. God said, my hand is not shortened that it cannot save. My ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. Your sin and your iniquity have separated between you and your God. Therefore, he will not hear you. So what do I have to do for a man to see Jesus? and to experience a new birth. The very first thing before repentance, before faith, if God can bring a man into honesty between himself and that man, that man will be saved. Now that's as simple as you can possibly make it. Here I take a man, I know he is dishonest, I know he is running away from God. I know that God is all around this man, that that man is walking in the presence and the covering of God and his dishonesty is throwing up a barrier around him. So if I can punch a hole, a little hole through that dishonesty barrier, that guy will break and give his life to Christ. How do I punch the dishonesty barrier? Well, I may have to talk about, I may have to say to him, be honest. See? On the other hand, I may have to say, why don't you get alone before God and ask him, you show me your, my sinners as I have hurt you. Do you see this? I may have to say to him, the reason why you have not given your life to God is because you've held bitterness against. And he's hidden all that, see? Bring it out into the open. The first thing, honesty, that's all. And you will find if you can bring a man or a woman to honesty, repentance, faith will follow in very short order. Do you see this? Let me give you some illustrations. Here is a man, he said he's an, he is an atheist. He comes up to Watchman Nee in a meeting. He says, Watchman Nee's witnessing to him, he says, I'm sorry, he says, I cannot believe in God, I'm an atheist. Watchman Nee says, oh really? He says, that's good. He says, I have a prayer that even an atheist can pray. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, here is a simple prayer that even an atheist can pray. Gave him the Gospel of John. He said, pray this prayer. Oh, God, and I do not believe there is a God. I am here praying to you, and I don't even believe you're here to listen. But if you are here, and I don't believe you are, and this is your book, and I don't believe it is, as I read it now, I want you to speak to me, even though I don't believe you're really there. 
Amen. The guy said, he, he looked at the logical, he thought, well, there's nothing illogical about that, you know, I can pray that prayer. He took the Gospel of John, he went away, he read it through, he prayed that prayer first, and he said, the first thing that struck me as I opened this, this book, which he'd never read before, he said, it said the next day, the day after that, and he said, it's funny, this book doesn't read as if the guy's trying to prove anything, it's like, it reads like a diary of a recorded series of events. Many years later, Watchman he was preaching in another city, and a man came up to him. He said, hi, do you recognize me? And he said in Chinese. He said, no, I don't. He said, no wonder you don't. I am not the same man who talked to you before. Do you remember the atheist that you gave that book of John to and asked to pray that atheist prayer? I prayed that prayer. And here I am today, a child of God. What was it? Honesty. That's all. Honestly. How many times has God given a word of wisdom to a Christian to crack the dishonesty barrier and watch the Spirit of God flood? Do you know what Jesus said? He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He said that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And remember Moses said, look and live. If you look and see, the Son of God with understanding you will live. That honesty barrier, that dishonesty barrier must be cracked. Um, I told some of you about this girl. I first discovered this. It was an exciting thing. There was this girl, and she wanted to go to the... Well, she didn't want to go to the mission field, but God had called her to the mission field. So she's going around and talking to all these different preachers. She said, oh, the Lord called me to the mission field, but I don't want to go. And the preachers will say, well, the Lord is good. He'll... You know, he'll take care of you, go to the mission field. Don't be afraid. You know, she talks for about an hour and then go to somebody else. Oh, the Lord has called me to the mission field, but I don't want to go. You know, what do you... She went to all these different preachers. And this, I was talking with this one last preacher in this camp, see, about this thing. And uh, he said, well, this girl's going to come and ask. I know she's going to ask. She says, ask everybody else in the camp. I said, why don't you try this one? Let's go and, and, and force her into being honest. And we talked to it a little while. And here she comes, you know, with a big Bible under her arm, looking miserable. A mosquito between the eyeballs, you know, she comes over miserably. And she says, I'm, I'm sitting there looking in the window, listening with my big ears, you know. And she says, God called me the minister. I know he's called me I can hear it talking with And this guy says, oh, fine, I understand. God called you in the mission field and you don't want to go. He said, that's right. He said, all right, fine, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's pray right here and I want you to tell him that. She said, what? So just tell him that, what, what you've told me. She said, what? what? Just tell him, God, I know you called me to the mission field, but I don't want to go. Amen. That's... She said, I couldn't say that. Said, Why not? Said it to me, didn't you? She said, I couldn't. He says, Lord, <laughs> Lord, here's a girl. I know that you, she knows that you love her and that you're really wise and all these things. And she knows that you would never do anything to harm her, but you've called her the mission field and she doesn't want to go. And she's here today to tell you that to your face. <laughs> and this girl says, he says, all right, you tell the Lord that. And she says, Lord, I know you called me to the mission field. Dishonesty again. 
She went to the mission field. Force a person into honesty. You can bring them honest. You watch the damn crack. And sometimes a kid will come up to you and that you know that there's dishonesty somewhere and you can't put your finger on it, see? You don't know where it comes. That's why we put a, a list of seven little questions there that sometimes a kid comes up and they say, I don't know, I, I'd like to become a Christian, but it just doesn't work. Then you know somewhere there's dishonesty. You've got to finger it by the help of the Spirit of God and bring it out into the open. When that's out, man, you watch what happens. And I was with a girl in uh, Springfield, Missouri. girl had been deeply into the occult. She'd been in Satan worship and all this stuff, and then... She became a Christian, apparently, and then she got saved, and she had these recurring occult attacks. She didn't know why they were. And uh, she's telling me, she says, this weird things were happening. She told me that her background was pretty rough. Uh, uh, dad had remarried, and uh, she really hated her stepmother, but she loved the dad. And all this, she said, she just kept on coming home. She couldn't stand her stepmother, and she'd split. But she loved her dad. She'd come back for a couple more weeks and then split again, and she was torn in half. Finally, her dad got frustrated and said, listen, why don't you go and live with your real mother? And gave her a shock. She didn't even know that she was still alive. She went. She found a real mother who was a Pentecostal Christian. So she went and stayed with this lady, and this lady led her to Christ. And she was up there at, at uh, Christian College there in Springfield, Missouri. And on the last night of some meetings I had, she came up and she said, listen, I've had this problem. She said, I thought I was delivered from the occult when I became a Christian. But she says, at night times, it's always at, at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. She says, I keep waking up. And there's this terrible fear in the room. And it's always the same time. I wake up, bang, I look at my watch. It's 2 o'clock and the fear is there. Just a weird thing. She says, I can't break it. I don't know what it is. And I'm, I'm, she tells me all the story, and, and she's going on in this thing, and suddenly the Lord spoke to me. Why is this girl not delivered, see? Why is she not delivered? You tell me now. Here she is. She's been praying. She's been trying to believe Jesus. Aha. Good on you, Barry. Right on. Dishonesty. Where's the point of dishonesty? The bitterness she had towards the stepmother. God, I've done everything I know how, and I'm still not delivered. One point of dishonesty. Disobedience in a little thing means disobedience in everything. And you know, the Lord spoke to me, and I said, stop, right there. I said, I'll tell you why you're not delivered, and I'll tell you what two o'clock means. And she said, you know, and then she went on, well, you know, and she, I said, stop. I said, I'll tell you what two o'clock means, and I'll tell you how to be delivered. She said, what? I said, two o'clock means you're two months. And the reason why you're not delivered is because you've held bitterness towards your stepmother. And tears just jumped right out of her eyes and the presence of God went boom, right? Just like a cloud fell on her, see? And she just, oh! You know, it just went like this. You could see it strike like a lightning flash right in her heart. And I said, you'll have to forgive your stepmother. She said, I, I can't. And I said, yes, you can. I'll show you how to. And I <laughs> Got a little thing here on how to confess and restore, see? And it was hard. I said, this is what you'll have to do. You'll have to write a letter of apology. I just happened to have a stamp with me. And uh, I said, this is how you do She sat down, and I, a girlfriend was with her. And I said, listen, before she goes home tonight, you make sure she writes that letter and mails it with a stamp on in the right address. See? 
and the, uh, her girlfriend said, do you have a stamp you could give me to? I have one to write. So. Uh. <laughs> what a tremendous thing to find a point of honesty. And, and think what God is trying to do. Just bring men to this. And whether you have the proper, see the proper direction then, any direction, you can give a man then any direction. In short, that will bring him to honesty, that will make him turn his back on the particular form of selfishness he's had and give his life lock, stock and barrel to Jesus Christ. That's basically all salvation. But when you understand it, you can apply it intelligently. Do you see what we're talking about? If you know the guy's problem is bitterness, then you know to bring him to honesty, he must be willing to forgive. If you know a guy's problem is uh, reputation with his friends, to bring him to honesty, you have to say to him, it's going to have to cost you the opinion of your friends. Do you see this? If you know the guy is proud, you'll have to say you'll have to humble yourself before God, before he'll meet you, or you'll never be saved. Do you see this? It's a very simple thing. It's a tremendously simple concept. And what freedom you get in witnessing. Sit down with a kid, talk to him. You're really listening to him now. You're not holding some plan in the back of your mind. You're really listening to Why are you listening to this person? Because you want to find out where their point of dishonesty is. What is the thing that has stopped these people from coming to Jesus Christ? Something in their lives that are dishonest. So listen and expect the Holy Spirit to show it to you as they talk. How do I know they're going to talk about the thing that's in their heart? Because the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I'm listening. The kid says, I don't know, I've tried to be saved. Nothing's ever happened. I'm listening to the words come out, and I say, well, I'll tell you why. Because you're bitter. Ugh. See that? It, it's so beautiful. You know, a kid saying, I've tried to be saved when nothing's happened, and I... Aha! Anger, unyielded right. Some things you've never been willing to yield to God. There's a power this brings into your witnessing. You're free, really free. You're not holding little plans and things in your head to do. See? Now, we have materials to, to help person show them how to apologize or show them how to forgive and these other things, and they're up here. But see, the key thing is this honesty. Bring them to honesty. Uh, I have to tell you the story about this boy. Some of you heard it before. I think it's a good one, though. There's a boy up in camp. Many other kids had come through to Christ. This guy wouldn't. He knew everything. He you know, saw all his friends get saved, realized what was happening, and just held back. No, you know. So finally, here comes this kid, and he comes in, and they bring him over there, and I have to go over and pray with him. And I said to this I talked to him for about half an hour. I told him how much God cared about him, how much his selfishness was hitting. I went through the whole thing, see. The kid sits there and didn't say anything. And I said, are you willing to give your life to God? He didn't say anything. I said, listen, I want you to understand that as long as you live selfishly, God is holding your breath enough in his own hand. And I said, the only reason you're still alive today is because of the mercy of Jesus Christ. I said, you cannot live this hypocritical in-between life. And I want you to make a choice. Either serve Jesus Christ and give him everything you've got or get right out of the church and quit calling yourself a church Christian because you're not. And I said, I'm going to give you just 60 seconds to tell God with your own lips one of two things. God, 
I'll give you everything I've got and I'll give up my pride and my hypocrisy. Oh God, I don't want anything to do with you. Goodbye forever. I'll give you just 60 seconds. And I walked away. I was praying, Lord, hit him. <laughs> I came back and I said, what did you say? He didn't say anything. I said, oh. Then you committed your life to serving yourself. You don't say anything, you're staying right where you're at, and that is in rebellion against God. I give you another 60 seconds to ratify what you're doing. I said, you've got to be honest. Walked away again. Lord, now I very rarely do this. I've never done this with anybody else. Came back in, and the guy, he was sitting there with his head down, and I said, what's it going to be? Are you going to give in to God's love, or are you going to go on pretending? Didn't say anything. I said, all right. I've said everything I know how to say to you. I put my hand on his head. I said, Lord Jesus, here's a guy. He knows all about your love. He's seen what's happened in other kids' lives, and he's turned his back on you. His head went down, boing, like this. You know? I said, he's going to walk out of this place like Judas into the night. Boom. You know? <laughs> and I said, Lord, I want to show the world what happens to a boy who deliberately rejects your love. Boing. <laughs> Then I, don't, I grabbed a piece of paper, and I said, son, what's your name? He told me his full name, and I said, I, I put his full name in, being of sound mind and sound body, do hereby declare I do not want God to be my father. I do not want Christ to be my savior. I bequeath my body to the ground and my soul to its rightful owner, the devil. Please read this at my funeral. Signed. And I gave him the paper. I said, here, sign this. And he read it through. <laughs> he said, I'm not going to try that. I said, why not? It's true, isn't it? You've sat here and you've said to me, I don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. And yet you still persist on pretending that you're Christian. And he said, I'm not going to I said, you, I don't want any preacher telling lies over your grave. I want to show the world what happens when a young man deliberately rejects and spits on the cross of I said, I want to preach standing up saying, he was a good boy. He was a church boy. He was a Christian, but he is strayed. I want that in writing. Sign it. And he said, I don't want to sign it. I said, then get on your knees and give your life to Christ. Boom! He fell off his chair. <laughs> fell on his knees. I said, say, Jesus, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. He said, Jesus. I said, a dirty, rotten sinner. He said, I'm a sinner. I said, a dirty, rotten <laughs> I'm a dirty rotten and the dam broke Whoom. repentance foul faith we got it finished praying brother I didn't have to say now don't take it by feelings you know he jumped up he hugged everybody in the room he ran around and hugged everybody in the camp I didn't have to say I wonder if he's a <laughs> see use that honesty Honestly. Let's look to God in prayer, John. Heavenly Father, witness is such a simple thing. We understand what the gospel is. You come and you raise interest, people's curiosity. They come and they say, who are you? And you say, come and see. And then you bring them into honor. We thank you for the way that you witness to religious people like Nicodemus. Raising questions again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To bring a religious man like that into honesty with you. To take a woman 
His life has been messed up and has to hide from the other woman in town to bring with her supernatural word of knowledge her into honesty. So she says, come and see. A man that told me all things that I ever did is not this the Christ. Now, Father, help us to be men and women of transparency and honesty as we go out talking to other young people. We can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit flooding our lives and flooding our eyes and giving them the courage to see that standing in front of them is somebody who for the first time in their lives they have seen as really transparently honest. Give them the courage to reach out and touch you. Your living presence that surrounds them, and covers them, and deals with their heart. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. All right, there you have it. The Conditions of Salvation by Winky Prattney. The pieces of paper that he mentioned that he had on hand were, uh, these are the facts and witnessing like Jesus. Those tracks have been digitized and they're now available to you for free downloads from moh.org under the discipleship materials uh, banner or tab. He also mentioned reading from the chapter of Andrew in Youth of Flame. If you have an old Youth of Flame, you can look that up or if you need a new one. Uh, I'll put a link to the new Youth of Flame 2.0, which has just recently come out. I'll put the uh, links to all three of those things in the uh, in the comments below on the podcast. Other than that, that's about it. I'm Jim Patton, your host. Thanks for coming along for the ride, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>